imagine a tree trying to grow tall and strong without having a real appreciation for how deep its roots go. That's often how black Britons try to navigate this world today. Striving to be successful and drive change without having a real appreciation of our history and how that history can propel us forward. If you're a black Briton, knowing your history isn't just a nice to have, it's a necessity. It's a tool that you can use to navigate and dismantle the barriers that you face today. Today on the podcast, we're honoured to have Arika Oke. Arika Oke is the former managing director of the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton. She's the current executive director of the British Film Institute in charge of knowledge and heritage collections. And she's an author having written an anti-racism book for children. Arika has been at the forefront of preserving and celebrating Black British history for the past 15 years. In this episode today, we uncover the stories of some Black British historical figures, we look at the change they were able to make in their day and lessons that change makers today can take and apply right now. And also, make sure you stay tuned to the end for some valuable insights on how you as a change maker can craft powerful stories to help drive your cause forward. This is 1000 Voices, the go-to source if you're a Black Briton wanting to drive change but stuck at the how. We unpack the tools that Black British change makers have used to drive change in ways in which you can too. I'm your host, Tevin Kitto, and I'm on a personal mission to eradicate all inequality and create a fairer world for us all. So without further ado, this is 1000 Voices, and here we have Arika Oke. Before I spoke to you, before I reached out to you, it might sound ignorant, I didn't know, I don't think I'd even heard of the job title on Archivist, is that how you pronounce it? Archivist is the job title. I don't think I'd heard the job title Mm -hmm. before until Mm -hmm. I spoke to you. What is an archivist? What, what what do you do? And <laughs> it's why so did you interesting. Get into that? Yeah, no, lots of people, if I say, oh, my job, I'm an archivist, they go, oh, you're an activist? <laughs> what are you? <laughs> like, they don't understand. Oh, you're an artist? Like, architect? What are you, what are you saying? Like, they don't understand the word. Um, so we have um, different forms of heritage. So you can have, like, intangible heritage, like, oral histories, like oral tradition. Um, you can have museums where you have objects like urns or tables. We have libraries where you have books that have been published or DVDs that have been published. Or you have archives and archives are the documentary, the documentary documented heritage. Sometimes you can think of them almost like the ruins of the past because it's what survived. So what about us will survive into the future? That will be the archives of the future. And an archivist is someone who proactively tries to save material for the future. Um, Also someone who tries to make that material accessible and usable. So a little bit like, uh, you know, I used to run Black Cultural Archives and that was set up specifically with that mission of saving, um, saving and making sure that there was a record of Black British history and Black British presence going back to Roman times. And to create that record, Len Garrison and the other founders of BCA had to go out and find it. So yeah, so there's that action first of finding, and then there's that action of collecting. And then you've got all of this collection how are people going to actually find their way through it? Is it just like, is it just going to be like static, you know, like white noise? Is it just a deluge of information? 
Like, how can you give people routes to find their own way through it? So if it's a museum and it's objects, a curator would decide, okay, this is a story I'm going to tell. I'll put an exhibition together. But where it's an archive, one of the power, one of the powerful things about an archive is that you find your own way through it. So the archivists gone out, they've found material, they've collected it together, and then they almost create like maps, if you like, for how you can find your own way through it. So they catalogue what they've got, what they've found, and they give the catalogue out on a website or what have you, and they find ways of, of metadata or whatever in that catalogue that helps people find their own journeys through it. So that's kind of what an archivist does. I mean, there's there's probably more to it, but that's the sort of principles. It makes perfect sense. Where do you, when you talk about proactively going out to find these pieces of history, what does that look like? It can look like all sorts of things. So in my job, in my in my career, um, I started out as a trainee archivist in Birmingham on the Connecting Histories project, and then I moved to set up the audience development program in Hull. I've been the archivist at Toynbee Hall in London. You know, I've worked at lots and lots of different types of archives. So in my career, it's sometimes looked like literally getting a phone call that some material's going into a skip, like a business is closing down. We don't want our material anymore. We're just going to skip it all. If you want anything, come and get it. So it's sometimes it looks like, okay, uh, there's someone who is passing away um, they know that they have some material, like some research that they've done that might be of interest. Could you come to the house and literally go through it, take what you want? And sometimes it's much more slow than that. So you're kind of looking through uh, newspapers or auction catalogues or you're searching online because there's a specific topic that you know has not like stuff must be out there about this topic. No one has collected it yet. And so you have to do that preliminary research. So it's it's really a, a mixture of sometimes just literally going out with like a box. Oh, oh my mm. God. I hope it's not covered in mold kind of thing <laughs> uh, to, to, you know, proactively being like, okay, I can see that's, I can see that's over there. Let me go and negotiate and see whether they feel like they would be comfortable putting it into a, publicly accessible collection so not everyone is comfortable with that you know some people will feel which is fine some people will feel like they would prefer to have the ownership remain with them um and then you can work with them to figure out ways where there might still be some ways for the public to be able to get to their collection so an archive isn't always about collecting everything into one homogenous place but is a lot about making sure that what we think about the present is not like looking back at the ruins of Rome, right? It's like, how can we actually get a picture of modern times? It's like, how can we, what snapshots almost of the times can we take to give the people of the future a better indication of where they've come from? And what snapshots of the past can we excavate so that we now have a better idea of where we come from? One reason why I was so excited to get you on is because your background and the work you do really ties in with some of the inspiration that I had for A Thousand Voices. Um, I told you a story about my grandfather, and um, which is a bit of a longer story, but then on on, the other, on another side as well, another bit of inspiration I had was that I felt that 
Black British history, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, people just don't know about it. Literally, yeah. the average person, yeah. myself included, didn't know much about Black British history at all until I went on my own journey of trying to discover stuff. And I went away and I remember telling my missus and some of my friends that, oh, you know the Montgomery bus boycott? You know, there was one in Bristol. You know this? Yeah. You know, we had that over here. Do you know, yeah. do you know about Olive Morris? Do you know about... Um, this person, that person, this event, all sorts of stuff. And people are like, no, like we don't learn it. In school, the black history we learn is Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Exactly. Maybe some You other. might have learned something about the abolition of the slave trade. You, like, you, may, you might learn something about that. But otherwise, you'd be like, you would be completely ignorant of knowing that there is a black British history, that there is any kind of connection between the African diaspora and this set of islands that we call Britain at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that our gaze is very Americanized. Not that it's negative, but it's very Americanized. We look over there for a lot of our narratives, but and then we neglect the narratives that we have over here in the UK. And I've gone away and I've learned a bit. I know there's so much more still mm-hmm. for me to learn. Mm-hmm. But in your, just based on you, your experience, and maybe some of the stories that you heard, are there any particular significant stories or historical figures or events that you've learned or come across that really moved you that you feel that we should know? That we should? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I have a similar experience to you in that, my background, I'm Yoruba, but I'm also from Hull. Um, and so having lived some of my childhood in Nigeria, you don't learn about Black British history in Nigeria. You might, you learn about like Nigerian history, which has some links to Britain, but essentially it's not, it's not going to cover, um, you know, the sort of things that you would learn in Black British history. And then coming from Hull, which is where William Wilberforce is from, the only thing that you will learn at school in Hull um, is about the abolition, because obviously William Wilberforce was an abolitionist. Um, but you do not learn about the black abolitionists, or at least I didn't. You don't learn about Equiano, for example. Um, so so similarly to you, it was kind of much later on in and actually my adulthood that I started to educate myself, but also to proactively go and seek this out. So I, I think it probably started from when I be, started to train to be an archivist. I think that's probably one of my earliest um, exposures to what really lies beneath, right? What le- lies beneath the mainstream stories. So when I was training to be an archivist, one of the collections that I worked on in Birmingham was the photographic archive of Van Lee Burke. So big top tip for everyone, Van Lee's collection, Van Lee Burke is one of the big figures, really. He's still alive. Um, so that's something else to take from Black British history is that actually there's a lot of our key figures who are still alive and we should be honouring them now and not waiting for them to pass into, you know, textbooks. Um, Vanley Burke was one of the forefathers of British documentary photography at all, of, of any ethnicity, um, but certainly of black British documentary photography. So he's he's a really big deal. Um, 
but also learning about things like Septimius Severus, who's African descent and a Roman emperor. Um, his power base was in Britain, who's an emperor of the Roman Empire. Um, also learning about you know the abolitionist like Aluda Quiano. Um, he's a he's a he's a he's a big figure and also a really good writer. So you can actually read his own words. You can you can you can take his narrative, which is published. I think you can get it in Penguin Books. I think have even published it and read it. And it's actually like a really good adventure story. Um, a figure who has had a film out this year. Um, What's he called? Uh, oh gosh, I forgot his name now. But he's a he's a he's actually a French figure, and he was a composer. Uh, Saint George, I guess. Uh, oh, Chevalier Saint George, of course. Oh, okay. Yeah, Chevalier. So um, there's a feature film out about him. Um, it went into cinemas, I think, in the summer. Um, he's a very entertaining character. He's he's not exactly Black British history, but he did come over here and perform and have a tour and and had um quite a big um he, he was he was a celebrity in his day one of the things that's really interesting to me about him is that he was such a massive celebrity and then completely gone from french history books from british history books from european history books he was a europe-wide composer celebrity and performer and a master fencer he was a music teacher to, oh, wow. Anne, to Marie Antoinette. Oh, um, like he's 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 super cool. His story is is amazing. So I mean, I'm sort of throwing names out because almost every figure that you'll come across in Black British history, all Black European history, Afro European history, Pan African history, they're they're worth knowing about, and they always have really interesting stories. But what you'll often find is that. Um, they have these amazing stories, these amazing careers. They're fated in their time. Um, and then the silence happens. So my main, you know, I've, I've named a lot of people, but my, one of my main icons is Mary Seacole. And I'm sure you know Mary Seacole. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we learned about her in school. Yeah, oh, you yeah. do. Well, well, I never learned about her in school, but she's <laughs> yeah. she's kind of a Londoner, sort of. She's Scottish, Jamaican. She's uh, you know contemporary of Florence Nightingale. Um, she tended to all soldiers injured, so perhaps a forerunner to you know the charity Medicine Sans Frontieres, which um, is a is a charity that operates all over the world, regardless of. Um, of um, taking sides on conflicts. Um, she used um, traditional medicines that she would have known from growing up in Jamaica. So, you know, there's a, oh my gosh, going into the history of medicine is a whole other <laughs> can of worms because Western medicine, um, the silences in Western medicine about where a lot of the knowledge actually originated from is astounding. But Mary Seacole, Obviously, she used some Western medicine, but she also used these traditional remedies. And she was a hero to the soldiers. And when she came back to the UK, um, became, you know, reasonably sort of destitute because, of course, this is like pre-welfare system, pre-any kind of veterans aid. Um, there was actually a, a – she was so still so beloved by uh, the military that they had a full um, – 
parade or carnival or fete or whatever the right word is down the Thames in her honour. Um, but then there's the silence after she dies. So, you know, I'm glad that you've learned about her in school. I feel like we might be slightly different ages because <laughs> I didn't learn about her, but um, I learned about Florence Nightingale. Yeah. And so there's something quite, you know, it is it is honestly, it's kind of sinister, the silences that happen. You know, what happened to the story of Chevalier, who's this enormous celebrity? What happened to the story of Equiano? We learn about William Wilberforce, but not Equiano. Mm. Why, why do we learn about Florence Nightingale, but not Mary Seacole? Right. So these are these huge, huge um, figures in the course of history, not not only black British history, it's the course of history. Um, so this is again why I'm saying, you know, to give people like Van Lee flowers in his time. Um, his legacy will will continue, but we should obviously honour people while they're still alive as well. Of course, there's a lot of power in stories. And when there was a stage in my life when I was about maybe 17, 18, when I was in college, I was going for a bit of soul searching. I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. So I thought that I wanted to be a doctor. And then I went and done an internship for my auntie's GP. Well, my auntie, not my auntie's GP. She worked at GP and got me an internship there. And then after the two weeks, I thought, yeah, this isn't for me. You don't want to be a GP anymore. Not after that. Not that yeah. there's anything wrong with it, but for me, I just didn't feel like that was how it I was going to. what you were called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not for me at all. So I was just like feeling lost like what am I going to do I need to decide what I'm going to study at university and all that kind of stuff and blah 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 and I remember just going for a stage on reading a lot of history and a lot of books in general just trying to figure out what I want to do mm -hmm. and I did delve a lot into history I delved into a lot into not so much British history to be fair but just black history in general mm -hmm. and a lot of African history mm -hmm. so I was reading about figures like Kwame Nkrumah um, and other right. black historical figures as well mm -hmm. and reading into them and then there's a lot of power in reading these stories because you read these stories and maybe you see little snippets of yourself even mm -hmm. if they're not even necessarily black mm -hmm. figures I remember reading Richard Branson's autobiography and I'm thinking my goodness this book is so good Richard Branson yeah because okay. I, I felt I saw, I saw aspects of his personality in myself yeah. and then you, I read Kwame Nkrumah I've got Ghanaian heritage so I could see you know, yeah, yeah. what he's doing all that then there's power in these stories especially when you see aspects of yourself in the person you're, you're reading about and these om omissions of some of these mm -hmm. figures mm -hmm. um, like the Mary C. Coles and the Equianos and some of these other people that you mentioned um, I know what it meant for me and what it done for me when I read into these different historical figures and, to, um, mm -hmm. and how that empowered me to go along the path I ended up going on and how it made me feel, you know, yeah. how you feel like you stand up tall, you're like, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm, exactly. I'm, you know what I'm saying? That kind of feeling. What, uh, what impact do you feel like these missing stories or stories that aren't being amplified, like they should be amplified mm -hmm. are having, um, particularly on black British youth? Yeah. Well, I think you, you, you kind of summed it up in a way. So if you see yourself, then you, if you see yourself reflected, if you can see role models, if you can see like actual paths for yourself, like options, it makes a massive difference. You know, you can put yourself into mental boxes. Um, your mind, you know, to a certain extent can be colonized. You know, you can receive what you think society wants you to be. You can receive what you think 
okay, my teacher will expect this or an employer might expect this. Or perhaps because I'm from this certain neighbourhood, I'm from this certain postcode or what have you, these are my options. So you, you kind of need to have, you, you kind of need to be presented options. And some people have it in themselves to very proactively be like, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do all of this research myself because I believe in myself. Not everyone has that in them. Or if they start off with having it in them, that can get uh, that can get squashed. That can get squashed down over time, right? So for you, you know, you had um, a family member that was a GP. I think you said. Yeah. So you're like, okay, well, maybe being a GP is an option for me. Um, for me, my my mum was a a teacher at one point, my dad was a computer programmer at one point. Um, I'm like, okay, maybe those are options for me. Like there actually isn't, you know, a role model in my life that was a archivist. So I sort of came across that relatively later in life, um, you know, had a different career first. Um, so I suppose to kind of answer your question, we have to be proactive, like people who, those of us who have the knowledge or have the expertise or have had exposure and have those stories that we can present out, we have to be proactive in presenting them out. We have to be the ones that go to young people or people even who are a bit older and be like, do you know what, these are your options, like dream, like dare to dream, I suppose, to be cheesy about it. Um, because we can't expect that everyone has the opportunity to imagine themselves into a potential future that isn't being presented to them as an option. Yeah, definitely. And when we talk, um, if we expand this out to wider society, so on an individual person basis, I can see why and how these stories are important mm. for us to amplify and for people to hear. On a societal level, um, do you feel that it would make what what kind of impact do you think it will make if we were to amplify because when we come to black British voices aren't platformed mm-hmm. in the world I believe in the way that probably they should be platformed mm-hmm. um, black British historical figures aren't mm-hmm. platformed in the way that they should be platformed um, mm-hmm. or could be platformed what impact do you think that would have on a societal level if we were to amplify some of these voices and stories some more I think it'd be really exciting on a societal (laughs) level. I think it'll be a massive shift changes. I I do honestly feel like some of those changes we can start to see already. So, you know, when I was a kid, um, you know, teenager, I felt like the options for black people would be sports person or Mm. going to music or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Not because that's what I thought I could do or what was laid out in front of me but that was if you ever talk to you know someone on the street or whatever they'd be like oh she must be able to sing because she's black like those are real things that are said to you um when you grow up with uh, in Hull <laughs> 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 um so so yeah so on a societal level not just the individual you know black kids growing up being like I don't know what I can be um all my role models have gone into this, so maybe I'll go into that. Um, or society says I can do this, so maybe I can do that. But on a 
beyond those individual children, our young people, on a societal level, then actually the shift could be, right, okay, so the employers will now know that the media, the, the way that people are portrayed in the media, even when it comes to kind of film and TV, which is the space that I work in now, the stories that are being written, the roles that are available, right, when you're casting a TV drama, like, okay, the casting agent's sitting there and a black kid comes in or a, a white kid comes in and they're like, okay, well, which one can play like the Duke and Brid Bridgetta? Do you, do you see what I mean? Mm. Like the whole, the whole landscape of what we see and what we experience evolves and changes over time, but only if we take steps to evolve and change that. When I was growing up, Bridgerton would not have been possible. It would mm. not have been programmed onto television. The casting would not have, would not have looked like that. The storytelling would not have worked like that. So there's been somewhat of a change, but we can go further. And I think it'll just be healthier for everyone the further we can go with this. Why did you make a personal decision to transition from your pre what was your, your previous career and then into the archivist or into what of being an archivist? Um, so I, my first degree is in history. So I went to the University of Birmingham and um, studied history there. And I had no idea what you could do with a history degree. <laughs> I <laughs> left university and I was like, I have no idea what I could do with this. Uh, I mean, when I was at university even, I was like, okay, I did a, an outside of my degree, I did a video production course. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, you know, I did, you know, all the things that you do at university, like get involved in multicultural week and, and, and all sorts, you know, just trying lots of different things. But coming out of university, I had no idea how I was going to use a history degree. So I did like office jobs, I did call centre jobs. And then I started working as a registrar of births, deaths and marriages, uh, which had a historical aspect to it. So, you know, when people are researching their family history, they go and they look through like the birth and death, well, sort of look through the birth and death records. Um, so I felt like, oh, I'm actually like close again to this physical this, these physical bits of history. So like these handwritten records that like literally write down everyone who was born and everyone who was died, but like handwritten with like their signatures and everything. And it felt like very special and magical to be close to that physical history. But at the same time, I really, really enjoyed as a registrar, like hearing, like meeting, this is when I lived in Leeds, meeting everyone in Leeds, like at some point everyone has to meet a registrar for like good reasons and for sad reasons. And just hearing their stories, like I would literally be kind of like registering a baby and just be chatting to the parents about how they met, like how did they choose a name? Or I'd be registering uh, a death and um, the widow would be there. This is the true, true thing. The widow would be there with like a, a long cigarette holder saying, well, of course he's my fifth husband that I've buried. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, wow, <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> so I knew like this, like, you know, I wanted to do something that like brought me closer to, the physical remnants of history that brought me closer to those those ancestors and those people from the past, but not that took me so far away from real humans. 
Um, and being an archivist, as you can imagine, has like such an incredible mix of that. And really in my um, heritage career, uh, my archives career, my main thing has been giving people back their heritage. Like, yeah, not just collecting it and keeping it, returning it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, my traineeship. That was the point of that project, Connecting Histories, which is still a seminal project in the UK heritage sector. That's what we were trying to do. You know, we've got all these collections in Birmingham City Archive from the communities. Um, and I guess they're just locked up and the communities mm. don't actually go in and use the archives. So the project was about like, how do we give them back? When you, you mentioned a lot of these, some of these Black British historical figures, and they're all amazing in their own right. From a diverse set of backgrounds though, but they're all quite cool mm -hmm. in their own right, done some amazing things. Are there any particular like lessons or things we can learn from maybe their characters that you feel people today who are also trying to drive some change and do some good work that they can take from these historical figures and do now? That's a really interesting question. I love that question. So one of the things that stands out, this is not quite the answer, but one of the things that stands out for me, just reflecting quickly back on the names that I mentioned, is their diaspora nature. So, you know, we talk about Black British history, but what we're actually talking about is like Pan-African history um, with a British connection. Um, so Mary Seacole is Jamaican Scottish, um, ends her life in London, but most of her life is not in the UK, right? Um, so I suppose, you know, to, to, to more, to, to more go towards what you're, what you're asking in terms of their characteristics. I think they were all very, very brave and they were all very, very charismatic. So they were talented and they knew that and they owned that. And they also used creativity to communicate those talents and to communicate the influence that they were having. So Chevalier was uh, a musician, a composer. Um, that was his currency, right? So he could have just been, you know, sidelined or what have you. But he didn't. He didn't allow himself to be sidelined. Um, but that would have been really, really hard, and that would have taken an enormous toll on him, because it's not actually that people allow themselves to be sidelined. It's you know these things happen. Um, mm -hmm involuntarily so we're looking at equiano again he's able to almost like market himself so you can think like chevalier has a kind of brand equiano also has a brand like they wouldn't have necessarily thought of it as brand because it's quite a modern concept and mary seacole as well like so she's a personality and she manages through her relationships that she has to achieve what she wants to achieve, which is not in fact fame and it's not, you know, fortune, but she's able to achieve what she wants to achieve through her relationships that she builds. Um, so yes, yeah, so I guess uh, like thinking about it, because I haven't really thought about that question before, but thinking about, you know, there's something about the brand that you make for yourself and how that, how you then manage the relationships that you make with others in order to create space for yourself. And I think for those figures that are further back in the past, 
the space that they're making for themselves is a protective space as well. So where are your allies? What mm-hmm. community can you build around you? Because if you're just on your own, actually you probably will be squashed by by the prevailing uh, mainstream society, yeah. which for them was very racist. Mm. It's very interesting when you say it like that. In my line of work that I do now, I've been fortunate enough to meet quite a few people who, in the corporate world anyways, who are fairly successful. They could be like C-suite, CEOs, execs, that kind of thing. And I do find that some of those traits that you're mentioning, that bravery, that charisma, they kind of, Mm -hmm. they know themselves, Mm -hmm. very much know themselves. And maybe that can manifest itself sometimes in whatever way, but they're very sure of themselves. And I do recognize that in people Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. tend, who are ultra successful, whether they're, um, in the corporate world, whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they're community activists and successful in whatever they're doing, they have a level of, I know myself, yeah. sort of about them. And then that interpersonal um, side of things, that charisma as well, is very, very important. We spoke just before we started recording about, and I don't know there's a very specific stat, so if you're listening, please don't quote me, because I don't know the numbers. <laughs> but on the number of Black British entrepreneurs that found businesses solo mm-hmm. versus entrepreneurs right. from other backgrounds, and they tend to partner up a lot more. And then what I'm getting from you, um, from listening to your stories and these historical figures, and then also when I'm talking about some of these other people I've come across, is that building the relationships and um, starting to that just I guess knowing yourself mm-hmm. um, is very very important. Yeah. Like trying to go alone is tough. Very, yeah. very tough and probably a lot tougher than people think. But when you're yeah. out here, it's tough. And building their relationships and maybe just going on the journey of self-discovery and learning about yourself is very, very important if you're wanting to make your mark mm-hmm. and drive some change in this world. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I suppose if we're giving, if if it's, if you're thinking about like advice for people who are like our contemporaries, our peers or up and coming, um, Definitely, they need to consider making space for their own well-being as well. So part of that is finding kinship with others. Um, So building whatever community you need around you. Part of it is finding space because a lot of the spaces that you will end up in can be very, very challenging um, and part of that is like maybe some coaching or what have you, because I feel I do agree with you that knowing yourself is very important. Being able to kind of return to what you think are your principles, your core values, but also knowing who you are, that's so, so important. So it's hard for us to kind of really assess those very historical figures that I've mentioned in that sense, because we don't really know too much, because they've been more or less erased from the record, we don't know too much about who their close uh, relationships were. Mm. But if you look at people more modern, so if you could look at someone like Horace Ove, so Horace Ove, who died this year, but was the first black British feature filmmaker, um, incredible, you can see much more clearly like how he so he's got all the same characteristics that we mentioned but you can see more clearly because he's more close to our time right the connections that he made and actually how important community 
was to him to kind of give him a grounding space to come back to. So totally agree about entrepreneurs and people being solo founders. But I think what's another story that is less told about these contemporary figures is that they do actually, they, and I guarantee they will have people around them that help to ground them and whether it's like a community or whether it's their other half that helps them set everything up. Do you understand? There's always going to be other people around them holding them up. When you talk about the power of community and then again, this personality side, the name that popped into my head was Olive Morris, who yes. I only learned about yeah. um, probably last year when I started a thousand voices, basically when I was doing a bit of my own research and her story is amazing. And she was so young when she passed away. I think she was 27, around about that age. I never remember was, dates because yeah. I'm an archivist. So, <laughs> you know, it all is all, yeah. yeah it's I all think one. 27, but again, please don't quote me if my age, if it's slightly <laughs> off, but it was, I think it was around that. But she was so young yeah. and had done so much. And for someone, and she was a part of a community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but for someone like her who was so young and um, clearly she's developed a sense of, identity yeah um and knowing yourself i feel like that's a somewhat of a prerequisite to become as as prominent as a figure as she was Mm -hmm. um but she's developed that and embedded herself within a community that's also helped to prop her up and given some strength and she's gone on to do a lot of stuff at such a young age that's such a young age exactly generally speaking when i was that age i'm trying to figure myself out (laughs) generally speaking people in their 20s or teenage years she started in the teenage years that they're not doing that they're, they're yeah. worrying about what they want to study and not thinking about the world like that yeah. but um is there is there anything in particular any insights you feel that maybe from herself or any from her or any more contemporary figures or other historical figures that um we could take on board today when it comes to developing that sense of um that sense of self and um and also um, on the community side mm-hmm. of things, like how people can go about finding a community of like-minded people to embed themselves in. Yeah. So Olive Morris is like such a great example, right, of someone who really knew themselves, but also was kind of fearless in knowing the impact that an individual can make on the world whilst also being embedded, right, in her community. Um and so like that, that kind of community in Brixton, especially like that Pan-African feeling and, you know, the emerging Black Panther activism, British Black Panther activism. Um, I guess those are sort of, they, those begin to kind of be answers to your questions, right? So, so she found like an activist community. She was part of it and they, fed into each other like all those individuals in that community and they kind of go off in their own directions you know found capital fm or you know uh found newspapers or what have you um a choice fm not capital fm (laughs) (laughs) very different (laughs) um so I, I think it's sort of, yeah, so the question about how do you find that those kinship circles, how do you find those community members, some of it is about kind of getting out there. Um, so I mentioned um, Black and Gay back in the day, so that's like an Instagram account, but by following it, you can then like find like-minded people. So 
there is, you know, that element of like, okay, what am I interested in? What is speaking to me? What am I being called towards? And then you'll find like-minded people in those ways and you will end up kind of feeding into each other. So you can have a space like Black Cultural Archives venue, which is One Windrush Square in Brixton, and that is a convening place. So it's a monument, it's a memorial, it's an archive, but it's also a space where you're like, okay, wait, what's happening at BCA? And you can go along and you can find community there and you can find kinship and you can start making connections with others that you then end up, you know, being part of a movement or founding a movement or getting inspiration that then takes you over to, I don't know, Bristol or what have you and finding the community there. So the things things come together, but it it has to come like that kind of making connections. That is something proactive. I think that yeah. we have to do. I'd like to ask you about storytelling. Okay. You've heard probably a million stories um, from your previous work, your work now, from historical figures, from contemporary figures. Um, the people that listen to Thousand Voices, our audience is primarily going to be people who are interested in driving some kind of change, whether that's in their personal life, in their communities, in their business endeavors, in their place of work, wherever they want to you know, drive some level of change. And I'm a massive believer in storytelling, and I think there's a lot of power in powerful stories. Do you have any insights on what you feel makes, um, what facets make? What makes a good story? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, a beginning, a middle, and well, <laughs> they yeah. have a plot twist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... I recently had like a distinct honour actually of interviewing, just like you're sort of having this conversation with me. I was in in your seat essentially, Uh, Reynaldo Marcus Green, who's the director that brought the the, like cinematic director that brought Top Boy back uh, to Netflix. Um, So he directed the first few episodes of the Netflix reboot of, well, rebirth of Top Boy and I asked him that question actually so I'm just trying to remember what he said because I thought he was very good at answering it Um, he talked about how sometimes when you can be very very when you tell a very very specific story what you're actually telling is a universal story so you can tell a story about Duchesne or what have you, on the Summer House Estate in Top Boy. And it's so specific to that area. It's so specific to, to that time, you know, that, that time, that, that year or what, whatever. And so specific to that context. But actually it's telling a universal story about anyone who's growing up in a particular family situation or anyone who's growing up and doesn't know which way to turn and society's putting pressures on them to to go down certain routes. So I thought it was like a really interesting insight that the specifics, like tell a personal story, tell your own story, and actually in that there's a universality. I love that. I know, it's good. He's really clever. Yeah, thank you so much once again. Um, that's that. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, this is 1000 Voices. We had Arika, okay on the podcast. And so for now, people, we're out. <laughs> good night. <laughs>